Hello everyone and welcome to Genocide News Now, a news update from the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast brought to you by the Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention. My name is Sarah and I will be your host today. You can find us at www.lemkininstitute.com as well as on Patreon, Spotify and iTunes. All the news and action items mentioned in the podcast are available on our website. Now, let's dive into the news and catch up on the latest. We begin today's episode with the latest out of Gaza. On November 9th, three Palestinian rights groups, Al-Haq, Al-Masan and the Palestinian Center for Human Rights, filed a lawsuit with the International Criminal Court, urging the body to investigate Israel for apartheid as well as genocide and issue arrest warrants for Israeli leaders, according to reporting by Al-Jazeera. The lawsuit also asked the ICC to expand upon the ongoing war crimes investigation, which was initially opened by the ICC Office of the Prosecutor in 2021 over the situation in Palestine. Israel is not a member of the ICC and has previously declined to engage with the court. Since our last episode, the number of Palestinian casualties in Israel's assault on Gaza has tragically reached 11,100, approximately one in every 200 people with more than 40% of the total fatalities being children who have either been hit by airstrikes, burned by blasts, or crushed by collapsing buildings. The ground invasion of Gaza by Israel started on October 27th. Since the attack by Hamas on October 7th, Israel has been relentlessly launching airstrikes into Gaza, including at UN-run schools, refugee camps, ambulances, and hospitals. In the span of 24 hours, Israel bombed at least three refugee camps in Gaza, with the combined death toll from these hits reaching into the hundreds. Equally disturbing is the targeted airstrike on an ambulance corridor outside of a hospital in Gaza City on November 3rd of this month, which ultimately killed 15 and wounded an additional 50. Despite the fact that direct attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure are war crimes, the Israeli government justifies its actions by blaming Hamas for hiding among the civilian population, a claim that in no way justifies the indiscriminate killing of civilian men, women and children that has been going on for over five weeks now. Human Rights Watch has written a report reminding us that the conditions inside Gaza pose an increased risk to the health of women and girls. According to Human Rights Watch, Approximately 50,000 pregnant women and girls in Gaza risk giving birth without access to electricity or medical supplies. This concern is echoed by UN rapid gender analysis. This crisis will likely result in increased maternal and infant mortality and morbidity, as we are seeing play out right now in the neonatal unit of Al-Shifa Hospital. After incubators stopped working this past Saturday, November 11th, three of the 39 babies being cared for in this hospital have died. The hospital staff are reportedly doing all they can under the circumstances, both swaddling the babies and using the scarce heat they still have available to heat the room they are in. The scarcity of water, safe sanitation facilities and medical assistance further exacerbates all of this, leaving women and girls, including those exposed to sexual violence, with unmet needs and newborn babies fighting for their lives. The United States continues to block efforts to pull Israel back from the genocide it is committing against Palestinians. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken continues to argue that a ceasefire in Gaza would allow Hamas to regroup and attack Israel again, essentially justifying genocide as a response to terror attacks. Although U.S. officials have urged Israel to take every possible measure to prevent civilian casualties in Gaza, Israel has made it clear that it will not do so. On November 2nd, hundreds of foreign nationals and dozens of injured Palestinians were allowed to leave Gaza. 
They crossed into Egypt and it's now expected that more foreign nationals will be allowed to escape the worsening conditions in Gaza. For example, as of November 12th, Russia has begun its evacuation of its nationals. On Wednesday, November 15th, Hamas stated that US President Joe Biden is wholly responsible for Israel's recent assault on Gaza's largest hospital, going on to say that the adoption by the White House and the Pentagon of the occupation's false claim that the resistance is using Al-Shifa medical complex for military ends has given the green light to the occupation to commit more massacres against civilians. Arab leaders, such as Jordanian Foreign Minister Ayman Safadi, accuse Israel of committing war crimes and do not accept the latter's justification of self-defense. There are also concerns that the situation could deteriorate into a regional war, possibly pulling in the US. A lot depends on whether Hezbollah, which is Iran-backed, will attack Israel from the north. The Lemkin Institute is disgusted that the United States and its Western allies have chosen to be complicit in genocide. We grieve for the human beings who are being ruthlessly killed in Gaza with no way to escape the worsening conditions and constant bombardment. It is imperative that the US and other countries supporting Israel push for a ceasefire and the opening of a humanitarian corridor. We find actions such as the statement by Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau on Wednesday, November 14th, to stop killing babies to be a positive indication that even the West's support for Israel could start to crack amidst the coverage of children in body bags and dead newborns. The fact that it should take images such as these to remind the West, in particular, of its humanity is abhorrent and inexcusable. Continued support for the Israeli attacks on Gaza amounts to complicity in genocide, which is a flagrant violation of the Genocide Convention. The Lemkin Institute believes that current support for Israel's actions should result in indictments at the International Criminal Court for complicity in genocides against the Palestinian people. Turning now to Azerbaijan, Armenia and the region of Nagorno-Karabakh, what Armenians call Arzakh. Since our last update regarding Azerbaijan and Arzakh, a UN mission was dispatched to Arzakh on October 1st after thousands of ethnic Armenians had already fled the area. The Lemkin Institute issued a statement on October 28th, registering its disappointment with the timing of the mission and questioning what the purpose of such a visit was. Had the UN been serious about this visit, they would have pressured Azerbaijan to allow a mission into the area during the nine months of blockade preceding the country's October 19th offensive on the territory, when Armenians were still there. Furthermore, the UN mission made clear that it did not take its responsibilities seriously. The mission itself was encouraged by Azerbaijan in order to improve its international image, according to reporting by the Center for Eastern Studies, betraying perhaps the true intent for this visit. Additionally, the team was led by UN resident coordinator to Azerbaijan, Vladanka Andreva, not exactly the most impartial of officials for such a visit. Ramesh Rayasingham, a Sri Lankan national and director of the Coordination Division of the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, was among those in the delegation. After a question directed at the UN spokesperson regarding the delegation was raised in regards to any UN human rights representatives in attendance, the response received was, As far as I know, there is no representative of the High Commissioner for Human Rights going on this initial mission, according to the UN's daily press briefing on the topic. Sometimes those that are not present in a delegation is as revealing of its actual aim as those that are included. 
The fact that a representative for human rights was not invited to a UN mission aimed at assessing the situation on the ground following Azerbaijan's offensive into the region is very telling of what the Azerbaijani government really wanted to achieve with this visit, a positive public relations campaign. Others involved in the delegation included representatives from the Food and Agriculture Organization, the UN Refugee Agency, UNICEF and the World Health Organization. If this were a mission aimed at good faith investigation, those making up the delegation would have more of a stake in finding out the truth and would include at least one representative from Armenia in the group. In a statement written after a one-day visit, the mission declared that there were no signs of damage to the public buildings, though evidence was all around Stepanakert had they looked. The statement also suggested between 50 and 1,000 ethnic Armenians remain in the Karabakh region, but made no attempt to verify a more specific number. Ethnic Armenians who had been forced to flee into neighboring Armenia viewed this mission as an insult. Despite the long-standing tension between Azerbaijan and Armenia, the Armenian Prime Minister has indicated his commitment to signing a peace agreement with a long-time foe in coming months, as well as his commitment to establish diplomatic relations between the countries. Such an agreement has evaded the two countries previously, but Azerbaijani President Ilham Aliyev has also suggested that a peace agreement with Yerevan could be signed as early as the end of the year. It is unclear what Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan intends to do about Aliyev's rapidly anti-Armenian regime, which has frequently made genocidal statements about Armenians and Armenia, and has recently taken to referring to Armenia as Western Azerbaijan. The Lemkin Institute believes that the key issue going forward must be Armenia's regional security and sovereign integrity. It is critical that Armenia's position vis-à-vis its neighbors be strengthened. Our final topic today concerns Australia, where the indigenous population faced a disappointing setback in mid-October when a referendum on the question of whether to alter the constitution to recognize Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people through the creation of an indigenous advisory body was rejected by a majority of the Australian population, with 60% of the national population voting against it. The proposed advisory body, voiced to Parliament, was seen as an effort at reconciliation, and the failure of its passing demonstrated the difficulty faced by Australians, who are calling for greater efforts at repairing past harms inflicted on indigenous communities. The indigenous population of Australia makes up approximately 3.8% of the current population, and in a direct parallel to the United States, are the population who suffer the most from socio-economic disadvantages in the country. A statistic made all the more significant when considering, one, how small a share of the population the indigenous people account for after the genocidal campaigns against them, and two, that the Australian government and people are still united in opposing real improvements in their situation. The Lemkin Institute supports the efforts being made by the indigenous communities of Australia and stands with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people in their fight for representation in government. That is all we have for this episode of Genocide News Now, but be sure to tune in to future episodes and stay up to date on global news. Visit our website at www.lemkininstitute.com for more on our work in the field of genocide prevention. And if you would like to take action and make an individual difference, feel free to take a look on our list of resources on our Take Action page on our website. Thank you for listening and have a great day.